What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Rethinking Christianity. On today's episode, I interview Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley is the author of a new book coming out on August 31st titled Love is the Resistance. And the topic of this book and the topic of our interview and the questions that we talked about was all about the idea of how Christians handle conflict and disagreements and how most of the world views Christians as people who are judgmental, harsh, and do not handle conflict or disagreements well at all. And this conversation I felt was very insightful and very helpful, and I hope that it can be for you also. If you could do me a huge favor by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing it with a friend, that would help others discover Rethinking Christianity, and I would be super grateful. And with all that being said, here is the interview with Ashley Abercrombie, the author of Love is the Resistance. On today's episode of Rethinking Christianity, we have Ashley Abercrombie. Uh, She is the co-host of the Why Though podcast uh, and is an author. And she has a new book being released August 31st titled Love is Resistance. And we are super excited to have her on today. uh, And I am so glad to get to talk with you. Uh, Thank you so much for, for coming on. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you, Blake. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So before we kind of get talking about the book and uh, getting into some discussion about conflict and how we resolve those things, um, I'd love our listeners just to kind of hear, you know, a little bit about you uh, and kind of how you got to where you're at. uh, And then we'll kind of dive into the book a little bit. Okay, awesome. All right. So I was born and raised in the Southeast in North Carolina, and I loved it. You know, I had a beautiful, beautiful upbringing um, in so many ways. And then something I learned in the South, although I've since learned that this is a human problem and not a Southern problem, (laughs) is that I was a master pretender and everybody in my town knew who I was and I knew everybody else, but none of us really knew each other at all. And there were so many conversations and emotions and things that were just off the table. And so I really learned to wear a mask and pretend like everything was okay all the time. And I didn't know how to pull my guard down and be honest about needs. And I just didn't know how to relate to people that way. And so that kind of set me on this trajectory. And I moved out to Los Angeles when I was 21 years old and lived there for 15 years. And that's actually where I got sober. I have 18 years sobriety this year. Wow. And so that's where I got sober from drugs and alcohol and, you know, all kinds of addictions and, and dysfunctional relationships. And then spent a little stint in Manhattan with my family. So I'm married now and have um, three little kids under six which means I'm exhausted all the time, frankly, like the rest of earth. (laughs) And uh, we just relocated here in Southern California and right before the global pandemic hit. So we've had a lot of change, a lot of transition, just like everybody else. And, you know, I think one of the through lines of my life has been writing. Um, I remember graduating from high school and feeling very unsettled and uncertain about what my life was going to be, but yet feeling all this pressure to know what direction I should go and know exactly how I should move through life, but not really understanding how to do that. Like I didn't, I think it's too much pressure that we put on young people and young adults to figure out life and to have, you know, your, your whole next 10, 20 years mapped out, you know, year by when you're going to get married, when you're going to have kids, what's your career, where are you going to go to school? Like all these things. And I certainly felt that pressure, but I buckled under that pressure. And so I think the one thing looking back 
out of all the jobs I've had, all the things that I've done is that writing has been a through line. And I started doing that when I was a little girl and just never really stopped. And after about 20 years of that being a side hustle, it finally became something that I do um, full time. And so, yeah, I love it. And I'm so glad to be able to to share that story with people, because, again, I think there's just too much pressure. For us to know it all, be it all, do it all. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely, I would agree with that. Um, so I'm super excited about this book that you have coming out. Um, Love is the resistance. Um, and so this is a book that, you know, from what I've kind of read through, I've read through some of the first chapter um, and it is like all about dealing with conflict and ha- how do we handle that as followers of Jesus, as Christians um, and we are notorious for not doing the best job of that. And I think yes. the last six years has been uh, so eye-opening in a lot of those things. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of like, how did you begin the process of writing this book and kind of what birthed the like, I guess, the heart for, for this topic? Yes. Okay. So when I finished my first book, which is called Rise of the Truth Teller, and a lot of that was more um, story based, like, you know, the recovery journey that I was on. But the last couple of chapters were very much about justice and, you know, what it looks like for us to love our neighbor, what it looks like for us to care about things that are happening in the world as believers, which I really do believe that. I don't think that Christians should build a little bubble of sacred and avoid everything that's secular and do all these great divides. I think like all of life can be holy and all of God, all of the things we experience in life have potential to create great good. And so I I don't think we need to separate ourselves from people. I think we actually need to engage culture and engage issues and engage people. And so um, in doing that, I kind of thought to myself, like, gosh, I love all that hashtag resist. Like I'm in the streets marching, you know, like I love it all. And then I realized like in some way, through all of the work that I had done as a person um, who was doing activism and serving in, you know, the, the, um, you know, nonprofit things that I used to do. I think that I realized that I was talking to people who already believed what I believed. Mm. And I realized there was going to have to be a time where I was going to have to extend further and push myself further to love people who didn't look like me and who didn't, um, you know, think like I think who maybe even people who don't really care about justice or who think that if you are a person who loves Jesus and justice, then that must mean you're political or you're a raging liberal leftist or whatever people believe. And I thought I actually need to engage people more than I'm doing. And I felt like the Holy spirit just said to me, you know, you are always talking a good word about loving your other, but you are rarely actually doing it. And so I think in the last couple of years, I've really pushed myself beyond, you know, um, the people that I like, yeah, we're in this thing together and realized I need to do a better job at love. And I realized biblically that we're commanded to love, but it extends even to our enemies. (laughs) It's like, that's hard. Like the gospel really is um, a hard one. And it's not just this personal little salvation thing. And I think that's why a lot of people are you know, a little bit disgruntled with the way the gospel has been presented because it feels so individual and it feels so careless with the issues that concern everyday people. And it feels like they're, you know, we're supposed to just build this little kingdom unto ourselves so that we can all be happy and, you know, comfortable. And I think most people I meet outside the church are like, no, I don't want that. And I care about other people. I care about my neighbor. And I see that through the gospel. So love is a resistance really came out of that. And then as I was beginning to write, I realized, you know, something we all suck at so hard conflict, like (laughs) like, we can't do it. We can't do it in our homes. 
we are either completely aggressive and volatile because maybe that's what we learned, or we avoid things and sweep issues under the rug. And both of those extremes are avoiding intimacy and con and connection. And we are avoiding being honest about where we are and what we think and what we believe and what we feel. And we're unable to tolerate other people sharing what they think and feel and believe. And so I was like, man, we need something that would actually help us engage with, with each other in a way that would make our relationships more meaningful and would also enable us to better understand ourselves and better understand others and to be able to tolerate difference, which is something we also suck at sometimes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. I love what you said. Like, you know, Jesus like really does set this example of like yeah. loving those that he probably didn't agree with. Uh, and he yes. didn't agree with it. You know, we see that. I think it's in Luke um, mm -hmm. where he's sitting with the, the tax collectors and the sinners mm -hmm. and they're like, why is he with those people? And it, it gives this example of for us, like he wasn't trying to just create a group that was just his people or just like him. He was with the people that were these outcasts and these people that I'm sure caused a lot of conflict in their in their day and era. And so I definitely agree with, with what you're saying. Um, especially in regards to people on the outside of Christianity looking in, you know, the yeah. birth of the followers of Jesus was this communal, like beautifully diverse group. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, we've kind of lost that in some ways. And there's still, yeah. you know, some great examples of it going on. Um, but in popular culture, it seems like people looking from the outside definitely don't see, you know, the good that can be from a good group of communal, diverse uh, followers of Jesus. Yes. And I think that, you know, exactly what you're talking about is so necessary in, you know, this example of Christians being able to dialogue and, and work well together. And I, and I have a quote here from the first chapter that I really liked. Um, and it goes, we struggle to be honest, direct, assertive, kind, and clear. Mm -hmm. The undertone of so much of our arguing is the fight to be right rather than to connect to a differing viewpoint and see if there's anything to learn. And that I think is so true because um, what I've found in my own Christian faith is there are many times where it's like, am I in this discussion or in this debate with someone of an opposite viewpoint to learn from them? Right. Or am I just trying to be right? Uh, and I think that, you know, that perfectly hits the, the nail on the head and in, in, in that quote of the struggle that I think a lot of us Christians and followers of Jesus have had. Yes, it is such a struggle. And I even think about, you know, what we're dealing with right now. I mean, I'm watching people, I have little kids, so this may not be as pertinent to people who are watching who maybe don't have children, but the way we're fighting about whether or not kids should be wearing masks in school, who should be vaccinated or not vaccinated, what state governments should do about the global pandemic, how they should respond to it. And I think like even just watching that fighting alone, and I know everybody listening is probably deeply impacted by this, even if you don't have kids, yeah. um, cause it's a real dialogue and discussion and everybody's trying to figure out a way forward, but just watching that and going, what? And there's been times where I've just wanted to completely cut people off. And in some cases, I actually think that's the healthiest, best choice for you to just end a relationship. You know, sometimes that has to happen, but there've been times where I've pushed myself to go, you know what, why does this family member really believe this thing that they say, and where did it come from? And so I've, I've learned to get a little more curious in my conversations with people that I disagree with when I want to have relationship with them. And even online, just getting more curious, like, Hey, where did you arrive at that conclusion? How did you come across that information? Where did you read or hear that? What did you watch that informed the way that you're thinking? And I think that that's been so helpful to become a person of curiosity, not only because it's helped me to not take things so personally, but it also keeps me in a humble place. And instead of wanting to immediately be like, 
what is wrong with you? You're acting like an idiot. You know, like all the things that I might be more prone to in my, in my sort of natural gut responses, I think it's helped me to get curious. And I think when there's more understanding about why somebody believes what they believe, you find a way to have greater empathy and greater connection um, and, and less uh, accusation and attack, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah. so that's been really helpful to me to just get curious. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I've found a thought that I've had lately uh, is just kind of observing, you know, the cultural dialogue of disagreements and stuff like that. And what I found in my own life and faith is this kind of idea of like, you know, people are to be known, not to be fixed or condemned. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I see, you know, Jesus doing that. Uh, And so that's kind of been this thing that's like, you know, when I hear someone that gives their political opinion or gives their yeah. opinion on a social issue, and sometimes my first response is like, they don't know what they're talking about. Totally. Um, but, you know, that's not the point of who they are as a person yeah. uh, and in my relationship to them, because at the end of the day, we believe people are made in the image of God and they're, they're right. in God's image. And so there's this call to love them. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that, you know, this is a, a struggle for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I'd love to talk about, you know, I think you have a chapter in your book on cancel culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a very big buzzword, hot topic thing totally. going on um, because, I, you know, I hear different sides of the spectrum where people are like, why are they dragging up people's past dirt? And then on the other yeah. side of that, no, they need to be held accountable. And I think a great example of this is I've been listening to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Yes. And that Same. has just brought the light to like, you know, this conversation around cancel culture in a way. Um, but you see the damage of what happens when these things aren't brought to light. Yeah. Um, and so I'd love to hear just kind of your thoughts on like how the church has responded to cancel culture and just how we ought to. I love that. Well, you are so wise. I want to circle back because I think this will lay a foundation to something that you said, but I think about, um, I wrote in the book that uh, learning love means unlearning fear. And so we are all raised with these sort of primal inclinations that are full of fear or full of love. And that informs the way that we relate to others. So if you grew up in a household that was like, Hey, all pastors, no matter what they do are to be respected, whatever they say goes, like it becomes a little bit easier to understand why someone would come into a faith environment and just assume trust instead of thinking critically, instead of, you know, beginning to go, huh, that behavior is a little strange, or actually that wasn't really rooted in love. The way they're speaking right now is pretty aggressive and not actually assertive. And so I think, you know, we, we are learning all the time, you know, as we grow how to love others and what we should be afraid of, or maybe you grew up in a house that told you that, you know, immigrants are here to steal your jobs and you should be afraid of them, right? If that's the rhetoric you grew up in listening to the news in your house or listening to family members talk this way, then it's easier for your mind to be formed, to believe those truths. And so I think that bleeds into cancel culture because I think so often we're like, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. So it needs to be canceled and it gets a little out of hand. And then there's those times where we need to hold people accountable. My dear friend, Selena Lockett, and I wrote about her in the book, but she, t- she says cancel culture is like civil court. And I loved that because I think about the Harvey Weinsteins. I think about the Mark Driscoll's like Mark mm-hmm. still has a church. He's still pastoring. He's still, you know, even though like people have raised flags in the current faith community that he's a part of, he's still out there doing the thing. And so what it means is like, Hey, you're bored. 
the people who are around you, the people you're accountable to are not holding you accountable. They are not, um, you know, enabling you to, to make positive changes in your life. They're enabling you to continue your oppressive, abusive behavior. And so we, the people will put you on notice and we will publicly put you on notice so that this behavior can be stopped. So Mark Driscoll, you know, um, Harvey Weinstein, we've got Bill Cosby, even though obviously he just was left. Uh, I mean, he was just released on a technicality, but we have all these different places or Megan Kelly, you know, it's not just males. Like I think about the different people who have very harmful racist beliefs or rhetoric that they share. And so I think that there is, we don't need to confuse cancel culture with accountability because mm-hmm. accountability needs to happen. And if that has to happen through the people, because the people who are, you know, in the top positions of power are unwilling to do it, then so be it. And then I think there are those times where cancel culture just goes too far. I write about, you know, the, um, there was a student at a pro-life rally in Washington, DC. His name is Nicholas Sandman. Some of you might remember this from the news. It was a huge viral story. Yes. Yeah. And so he, he basically was the way that CNN and the Washington post shot the footage or what they showed to the people. There was a native American elder who was marching in front of him, beating a drum. And the way that it got displayed was that this young man was yelling at the native American elder and that there was a big conflict between them. But the truth is he was actually yelling across at another group that is also very polarizing and they were having a connection. And the native American elder was beating the drum in between them to calm the, the conflict between them. And so what we realized after is that he decided, you know, a bunch of people on the, on the more conservative and the far, far conservative ends of the spectrum started talking about cancel culture, wanted to cancel Nicholas Sandman, went crazy over people who are pro-life, all the things happened, it went down. And then his parents decided to sue these two news outlets. And Nicholas Sandman won $250 million from the Washington Post and $250 million from CNN. So this is what cancel culture produced for a young man who was likely already in a pretty good position to be at a private school, you know, receiving an education, obviously had a family that is able to sue two major media outlets and get half a billion dollars. So I think this is an opportunity where cancel culture went way too far. And I think that, you know, we just, it's extreme sometimes and it's necessary sometimes. And so I have a more nuanced perspective about cancel culture, but I think that's important that we have that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, what's interesting about this conversation is I think most of the issues that people get in fights about are much more nuanced than it's not as black and white. And I think that that's where this conversation is so vital is I think at the end of the day, people agree on more than they disagree on. Come on. Um, And I think that's the majority of people. But what oftentimes what makes the news and what gets clicks and what gets sells is division and disagreement. Uh, And so with, with speaking on division, you know, I would say right now, other than like the Civil War, I guess we're probably more politically, socially and religiously divided and the United States than ever before, other than probably the civil war um, era, you know, and especially in the church. Um, so my question to you, I guess, is, you know, how do you think that we should respond to other Christians, you know, other brothers and sisters who are followers of Jesus um, and those that may like, you know, be on a different side of the spectrum theologically or socially? Um, and how do we have a balance of, you know, there are those that may be preaching or teaching a message that's so either far left or far right, that it's not really even the gospel anymore uh, or not the way of Jesus anymore. And so how do we deal with the conflict there while also maintaining a balance of what is true and what we want to show the world is the true message of Jesus? 
Yeah. What a wonderful question. You know, one of the things that I like to ask myself consistently, and I also like to ask this of other believers is what is pastoring you? Because I think sometimes that we assume that our little hour on Sunday, if we go, or maybe an hour long podcast that we listen to, or if we pop open our Bible once a week, that that is, um, and I'm not dogging anybody who does that. I have three children. I sometimes have to read the Bible while I pee in the morning. It's like, it's very serious. Okay. Like we all, you know, we're on the spectrum here when it comes to how we study and read and connect with God. And, but, but I will say like, what is pastoring you? Because that couple of little hours a week is not going to inform your faith or the way you relate to yourself, God, and others more than all the media that you consume or the scrolling that you do every day or the, you know, video hot takes that you watch on reels or the hot takes that you're watching on, you know, Instagram or reading on Twitter or the news that you might be consuming. And I say this not from a place that I've arrived here, but as something that I also struggle with. And so I think that it's important for us to learn you know, what are the things that are informing the way I think? What are the things that are informing the way I believe and who is pastoring me? Is it ultimately the God that I love and serve the, the God I could see in the life of Jesus, the Holy spirit that is my advocate and my help, or is it all these other things? And if I rely on all those other things as my main sources, and I think that I'm right all the time, or I think like, yeah, everybody who's on this side of justice, like I like it, that's what I want to listen to. That's what I want to read. That's what I want to consume. And I think sometimes the the things that, you know, we do, they're accurate and they're good and we should be reading those books. And at the same time, like pulling back and going, what are the things that are informing me? That's important because it, it determines how we fight with others and how angry we get at others because fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And those things have to be happening no matter the context of our life. Like that's the point of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You know, walking with God doesn't mean you get a Range Rover in a nice house. Like that's not the point of it. And God doesn't favor the rich over the poor. And God doesn't, you know, demonstrate his love or his blessing through things and through monetary, you know, consumption, which is what a lot of us trick ourselves into believing Mm -hmm. God actually wants us to birth that fruit of the Holy spirit, no matter where we are, no matter our context, no matter how people are coming against us or how people are with us. Like we actually have to be people of faith who will allow love to lead, allow patience to lead. Are we in a hurry all the time? That's, that's what this earth is informing us to do. That's what this American culture informs us to do. We're always behind. It's never enough. We got to be better. We got to be more. That's not Christ. The way of Jesus is slow and it's steady. And it's sacred. And so I think a lot of us have to determine where are we getting all of our information and what is forming us, because that is the way we relate to others. I love what you, you've said about slowing down. I, I just finished the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Yeah. And so that's, and I've been thinking through a lot of that too. And, you know, when you're slowing down, yeah. uh, when you're in the way of Jesus, which as you mentioned, it's steady, um, yeah. you know, it gives you time to be able to think. Come on. And when we think we can understand, you know, yeah. how we respond to these, these things. And, you know, I, you know, I find it frustrating, you know, the people that I guess, and I don't want to demonize anyone, but I get frustrated right. at, I I want to demonize the people that demonize the other spectrum, one side or the other. And so it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to like balance and, and kind of deal with. Um, Do you find that there are like specific reasons why Christians find it so hard to kind of deal with the conflict, especially with each other? 
Um, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that our upbringing has a whole lot to do with it. You know, maybe you grew up in a household where, you know, you, you're watched your family never fight and every toxic emotion or every negative emotion was assumed toxic and you couldn't talk about it. So if you felt anger, you didn't know what to do with it. If you felt anxiety, you weren't allowed to express it. If you felt afraid, it wasn't something anybody in your household talked about and everything just got swept under the rug or perhaps it was the opposite and people were always fighting and it was very chaotic and, you know, maybe it was some combo of both, but I think none of us really grew up with solid examples of what it means to work through conflict. And then we grow up watching lots of TV and media, which I'm not anti. I loved it. I do it. I let my kids do it too. But I think that we learned that conflict should be resolved um, by the end of an episode quickly. And everything that comes out of the person's mouth should be perfect in order for it to get resolved. And the reality is conflict is very messy and conflict is not easy. And so I think part of it's how we're formed. And the same thing happens when we go to school. The same thing happens when we go to work. You know, people don't talk about the hard elephant in the room on your jobs. Like it's very rare to be part of a work culture that's willing to engage in assertive communication so that you can resolve issues that are unresolved. It's very rare for a culture to name the thing that everybody knows <laughs> and deal with it. And so I think that we, we as believers have just learned the ways of this world and, and have to learn how to communicate to one another, how to open up honestly, how to practice healthy differentiation, which means, hey, I have my own thoughts, feelings, desires, and you have your own thoughts, feelings, desires. We both have different belief systems that we're operating from, and I can share mine and you can share yours and we can tolerate that. And I have good boundaries and I know where I end and another person begins. So I don't have to take everything so personal, which is very often what happens. And we struggle to listen. And so again, to your point, what you just shared about hurry and what I talked about earlier, that's a big part of it too. You know, we're afraid and we're hurried and, you know, it, we need to be able to slow down and be okay with having messy relationships. My husband and I, one of the things that we teach people to practice, um, is that we, we have a saying that we start every difficult conflict with, and it's this, we just say, you know what, I don't know how to have this conflict. I feel very confident that the words that come out of my mouth may not be perfect. And I'm probably going to fumble over some of the things that I want to share with you, but I value our relationship. And so I'm afraid, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it sets the tone for the conflict. It sets the tone to be humble. It sets the tone for, for me or for the other person to not expect perfection, that we're allowed to make mistakes in the middle of our conflict. And it sort of sets the tone for us to go slow. You know, it just gives a humble posture to the conflict. And I think that is something we're really missing. And humility is so important, Blake. Like, yeah. I wish that believers would stop doubling down on pride. I wish that we were not so convinced that we're right. I wish that we weren't, we didn't have this deep rooted desire to be certain about everything in the world because it's just not possible. We have got yeah. to become more humble. And the last thing I say, I know I'm talking a lot at the moment, but in, no, um, <laughs> in James 3, it basically talks about what true wisdom is. And in the amplified version, it talks about how it's willing to listen to, to reason, that it's pure, that it's, you know, peace loving. And so I think that's so important to think about, gosh, when I sit down in a conflict, am I willing to listen to reason? Like, what if I'm wrong? Yeah. What if I'm wrong? And then what if I'm right? You know, what does that mean for the other person? How do we both gently approach this as, as humble people? And I think that's something the church has lost. And these hot takes on Instagram, I love them. I'm here for it. They're so fun. But at the same time, it's like that, that works great on the internet. That stuff don't work in real life. That ain't going to make your relationships better. It's going to make them worse. <laughs> and pe people are much more brave on the internet than in person. So that's, that's, a, that's a different dynamic.
you that said whole, it. That's a whole different conversation. But yeah, and I think another thing that, you know, when in something that we talked about earlier of the kind of the idea of like the community of Jesus should be very diverse. Yeah. And what has happened, especially in America, is we become so used to being around our people, like our group, yes. like I grew up in a Southern Baptist white evangelical church. And yeah. it was like, if a, there was a black African-American that came to church, we're like, oh my gosh, we, there's a, you know, they stood out. Yeah. And so when you're so used to being around the same kind of people that think like you, that yeah. are in the same social class as you, right? it becomes like this thing when you're finally exposed to different thoughts and opinions, there's almost a shock factor to it where it's yeah. like, oh, I haven't had to practice throughout growing up, you know, how to deal with like these different opinions, different ideas. Uh, And for me, that's, you know, that's been really great in my, when I went to college and into my twenties is really understanding like, okay, the viewpoint I grew up in is probably the minority of the world, even though it may be the majority of where someone is at. And I think that, you know, continually being open to learning that quote that, that I said earlier, you know, I don't think, I think Christianity in America has become this faith as like a war that has to be won. And I don't think that that's really what Jesus was ever intending in the first place. Um, right. And so I think everything that you're saying, I, I definitely agree with. And I think it's something that I've personally struggled with, but I've had to like be more open to and kind of learn through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, so in regards to that, you know, Jesus, he talks about loving your neighbor. And one of the things that I, I really love about it is he doesn't really, he doesn't say who is the, the neighbor. He just says, love your neighbor. And then Come he on. gives the story of the most unexpected person to be the neighbor, which was the Samaritan. Yeah. And so what have you seen, you know, kind of from Jesus in the scriptures and in your own personal life and just in your faith of what that means for, for you to just love your neighbor? I love this so much. You know, I I wrote a whole chapter about loving your neighbor because I just, I love it. And one of my favorite sweatshirts, and I quoted it in in my book because I love it so much. Carlos Rodriguez, he's the founder of The Happy Givers. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I love him. I love his ethos on life. I love the way he thinks. And he has this whole shirt that's like, love thy neighbor. And it's like, love thy black neighbor, love thy conservative neighbor, love thy immigrant neighbor, love thy, you know, a, a Republican neighbor, love thy democratic neighbor. Like he lists all these things and he makes room for basically like everybody that you could have potential beef with. He's like, they're listed on this shirt as a, as a solid reminder of the practice of enemy love. And I think what's so interesting about the story that you talked about, you know, the Samaritan who did stop, you know, the good Samaritan is what we we've learned to call it. If you grew up in any kind of church culture at all, but the, the priest and the, the other religious person who passed by and didn't stop, you know, maybe they had a good reason. Maybe they were hurried. Maybe something was going on in their household. Maybe they really couldn't stop. Like if we suspend our judgment and don't assume the worst of them, perhaps there was a really good reason. I think that's true for most people. Most people are not looking at people in ditches and being like, Hey, I just, you know, I don't want to help. No, they want to help, but they hurry past because it's like, how can I stop? How can I stop my life? How can I be here? But then we see the good Samaritan. And what I love about this story is that he would have been considered by the other two religious leaders as a heretic for what he believed. He didn't believe the same way as they did, which is part of the reason they so disrespected the Samaritans and felt like that Samaritans had intermingled their faith in God with other things. And it's really interesting that that is the person Jesus makes the example. Like, hey, the heretic, the one that you think has wrong beliefs, the Mm -hmm. one that you think is out there saying things that are not accurate, that are not helpful, is actually the one who shows the mercy. And so who do you think is the most merciful? And they're like, hey, that guy stopped in the ditch. And he's like, correct. Like, that's the one who shows mercy. You go and do likewise is what he tells them through this story. And I think it's really powerful because sometimes we feel like 
you know, we should figure out like, who is our neighbor? Are they worthy of love? Are they worthy of me stopping? And if somebody else just chooses to do justice, we sometimes judge that we're like, well, I don't like the way that black lives matter does justice. And so I'm going to, you know, have my thoughts and opinions about it and critique it, but I'm not going to do anything to help. And that makes us like the religious leaders. It makes us like the Pharisees who said, and Jesus said about them, they put heavy loads on people and do nothing to lift it off of them. And so we cannot sit back and just critique all the neighbor love and sit back and think like the way people are loving their neighbors is not the right way, but I'm going to keep hurrying past and not doing anything. And I think we have to realize like, are we actually engaged in loving our neighbor? And do we know our neighbor? Have we practiced enemy love? Do we extend ourselves to think for a second? about what God thinks about these people. I put practices and techniques at the end of every chapter because I really want us to do this. And one of them at the end of that love thy neighbor chapter, the technique is to sit and think about receiving God's love. Mm -hmm. And then to picture someone that you assume is an enemy or someone that you disagree with or someone that you have, you know, beef with issues with, or you think maybe they preach the wrong gospel or they're not doing it right. Can you sit for a minute with God and imagine God's love for them and just picture that? What would that look like? Because I want us as believers to come to this place where we can understand that God loves the other side, that he's not on our side and that he's not fighting on our behalf. <laughs> like you said, it's not a war that we're out there trying to win. We're not, you know, in the moral purity Olympics as believers, but we actually have to understand that God loves the other side. So every time I fight and demonize and villainize people that God loves, I'm not acting like the Lord. I'm acting like something else. And I really want us to believe us, us as believers to get this. Yeah. And I like what you, you know, obviously there's always a response to a lot of the social justice stuff. And I find it so, it's such an interesting thing because it's almost like, you know, we're always looking for a reason to not do something. It's like, if I, can, if I can find the thing I disagree with, I don't, have, I don't have to respond. And Preach. so that's kind of like an interest. Like, you know, and I've seen that in my own, you know, thing. Yeah. Like, in my own walk. And so that, yeah. that's kind of interesting. Um, so you mentioned some practices um, at the end of mm-hmm. each chapter. Is, was it at the end of each chapter? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yep. Um, so, you know, I was thinking through this, like, how, what is there, is there something that um, is kind of like this foundational, I guess, like home base that you could just mentally go back to mm-hmm. every time that there's some kind of like conflict or disagreements where a lot of times our first response is to, to respond, yeah. but what could be like that first that foundational thing that, that is like almost like a spiritual practice of regardless of the disagreement or the potential argument, I'm going to take a moment and return to this thought or, or whatever. Yes. Thank you for asking that question. So my dear friend, Dr. Mary Glenn, she is a professor at Fuller Seminary and is a prison chaplain and does an incredible amount of community development here in the Los Angeles area. And we met about 10 years ago when I was um, about to become engaged as a prison chaplain. And I just met with her. We stayed friends. And I remember calling her um, when we first arrived in Manhattan. It was a little bit of a surprising jolt for me because I'd come from a very like equitable justice community and landed in Manhattan, pastoring on Wall Street with my husband and realizing like, wait a minute, I have a lot of issues with rich people I didn't know I had. They get on my nerves. I'm having a tough time, you know, like, and I was raised, um, you know, I I would lived in poverty until I was uh, 27 years old. And so I know what it's like to feel 
um, you know, like I have an enemy or I have someone who's constantly trying to put their foot on my neck, if you will. And I, I remember calling her thinking, how am I supposed to pastor a whole church of these people that I don't like Mary? Like, what do I do? And I was sobbing, like, I can't do this. This was a bad choice. Why did we come here? And our whole church wasn't that it was a very rich, diverse community. But I think the loudest voices sometimes really grab you. And you assume that that's what the whole is made up of. And so anyways, when I called her, she just said this to me. She said, Ashley, here's what I do. Every time I feel like I cannot connect to another person, I remember that I am beloved of Christ and they are beloved of Christ. That is my brother. That is my sister. And that is my starting point. And for me, that's what I return to when I strongly disagree with someone, when I feel tempted to hate someone because of the harm that I think they're doing, when I feel tempted to um, avoid, when I feel tempted to walk away from something God might be asking me or inviting me to engage in, I return to that. That is my brother. That is my sister. And it is a reminder to me that that is a person God loves made in his image. And that has helped me. That's awesome. So do you have, you know, anything maybe specific for the, the, you know, there might be a person listening to this that has unfortunately observed the, the horrible ways in which we've handled conflict. Um, and I, you know, I have people that listen that I talk to on Instagram and things like that, Mm -hmm. that, um, comment on things and they're like, you know, Christians don't even represent Jesus anymore. And so I was just curious if you had any, just maybe something for them, um, some Mm -hmm. kind of encouragement, some kind of like, Reminder. And the thing that I always push, I always think through is the idea of if you're deconstructing and you want to remain Christian, my hope is that you would reconstruct not towards a church, not towards a Mm -hmm. pastor, not towards a theology, but you would simply reconstruct towards who Jesus was. Uh, And so I'd love to hear just kind of your thoughts for the person that's listening that may just be really skeptical of like, this is great that y'all are talking about this, but I still don't see it. Yes. Oh my gosh. Well, first of all, you're, you're right to think that way because the public witness and the public view of Christians is so demoralizing. And I, Barna group did a study of young people who actually weren't believers, but of young people under the age, I think of 25 or 26. And they found that the three dominating beliefs that they believed about Christian were that they were anti-gay hypocritical and judgmental. And that's what they believed the sum total of Christianity is due to the public witness. Now on a personal level, I'm, I know Christians who are generous and sacrificial and loving and marching in the streets and like, you know, moving forward policies that will actually be a blessing to people. Like it is beautiful to see what it looks like in real life, but this public witness I think can feel so discouraging. And I remember walking away from the church completely, you know, deconstruction is not new. It's just something that we talk about more often, but it's been happening since the beginning of time. Because like I said earlier, we have to unlearn fear to learn love. And that is a deconstructing process. We are dismantling beliefs that are not accurate in order to take on new beliefs that are loving and generous and good. And so, you know, this is not a, a, a new phenomenon. But I remember walking away from the church. My husband and I walked away for a full year. We didn't go back. And for some people, that's a lot of time. For some people, that's not a lot of time. But we didn't go back for an entire year. And in that time, I felt very convicted that I had fully amassed the church with God. And I had to really just take a take a beat and allow God to minister to me. And because I wanted to, to your point, for those who want to remain Christian, I wanted to. And I really fully believed in Jesus as an addict and like all the things that I had seen God do, all the miracles God had done in my life. I became a completely different person, a completely different person because of my faith in Jesus. And so I took a minute to go, God, what's you, what's your kingdom? And what have I enmeshed? Where have I enmeshed church culture? 
and this sort of dominating public narrative with who you are, because it really made me not want to serve or worship God. Cause I was like, if these are your people, like, are you kidding me? You can't do better than this on the earth. Like you can't do better God. And I had really pushed those two things together. And I began to learn that the Lord is meek and that he's holy and that he's good and that he makes all things new. And that he is a redeemer, that he's still saving people. And that in the quiet, ordinary places of life, there are believers who love God and they are working in CEO positions and they are working in schools and they are working, you know, in, in all these different sectors of society in all kinds of different positions in all kinds of economic classes in all kinds of countries and all kinds of races. And they love God and they are generous and loving and sacrificial. And I really got to that place where I realized like this public narrative is not telling the whole story. And so I don't want to believe that that is the sum total of who God is or who the church is or who believers are. And I began to really, you know, study and see, God, where are you in this world? Show me yourself. And how do I, how do I follow after the ways of love? And that was helpful to me. That's so true. How have have you seen, you know, I like to ask questions of like when someone's written something that's really impactful, Mm -hmm. what have you seen, you know? the fruit of in your own life and your own, you know, spiritual health and your own following of Jesus. What have you seen change in you uh, Mm. by practicing these things and and kind of engaging with some of the ideas that you're presenting in this book? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Your, your questions are really thoughtful, Blake, and I appreciate them. Um, You know, I think that, you know, I'm really practicing what I preach. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that is so important. You know, I, I want to be a person who values integrity over image. I don't want to be the kind of person who values my image over my integrity, because I know what that produces. I know the level of pretending that produces. I know the level of pain that produces. I know the level of um, capacity to hide that I have. And so I think for me, really learning integrity and being like, Hey, I'm the same person in every environment. You know, if you're sitting with me at home, that's the same as when you're sitting with me right now. Like I'm the same person and I feel like I have good boundaries and great health and, you know, I'm a safe person. And I also feel like truly I have learned to love my other. And there have certainly been cases where I have ended relationships and gotten to a place where I'm like, this person doesn't want to change. They don't want to have a conversation. Like it's over. We can't do this. It's not going to happen. But you know, Roman says to, you know, oh no man, but to love him. But that doesn't mean I have to like everybody. Thank you, God. And so there's a lot of people that I haven't stayed in relationship with, but I really do. I've learned to love the other side. And even when I find it infuriating, I'm able to push myself a little bit further than I used to. I'm still on the journey, but I can push myself further than I used to. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That, yeah. You know, in regard, in regard to that, I think through like the story, there's a great story. Oftentimes we make it a children's story, but it's the story with Zacchaeus and Jesus. Yes. And, you know, no one liked him at all. Yeah. Uh, and what you see is Jesus looks to, again, like the story where he's with the tax collectors and all that. He, he's with another one and he's with him and he's like, come on, I want to get to know you. Yeah. Uh, and it's like Zacchaeus was not this project. Um, he was just someone simply to be known. Yeah. And I think that that is the, the fruit that comes from looking to truly love people as they are, not as what we have for them or what we expect of them. Yeah. Uh, so I think that, you know, this uh, book is a message that's very important and that reflects that. And I love that uh, you're encouraging people to love your neighbor and yeah. you know, deal with conflict. Um, and I've enjoyed just kind of getting to talk with you and I appreciate you coming on. Um, I think it's going to be very, a very impactful message for those that read it and will take it to heart and allow it to challenge them. Thank you. Thank you, Blake. Thank you for having me and being who you are. I appreciate your good work in the world.
<laughs> and also, if you could let our listeners know where they could kind of grab a copy of the book or just kind of yeah. find out more about the content and the writing that you do. I know y'all have this, the Why Though podcast. Is that yes. correct? Awesome. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, yeah, several different places. I'm, I've spent most of my time on Instagram because I just like it the best. I'm sorry yeah. about that, but it's true. So I'm on there at Ash Abercrombie. And on my website, there's lots of places where you could purchase the book. You can actually buy it anywhere books are sold, um, but you can purchase the book on there. I also have a video series for those of you who might like to do a book club, or maybe you don't have a spiritual community, but you're interested in gathering some people, there's a video series you could do. And yes, the why though podcast. So my dear friend, Tiffany Bloom, who lives in Tacoma, Washington, and we do a great podcast every week um, where we answer some of the harder questions of life. So we'd love to have you guys connect with us any way you can. (laughs) Awesome. I would definitely encourage y'all to check out the podcast or website, the book. I'm going to put a link to all of those things in the episode notes. So go check it out. This could be something that challenges you. And for if you're the person that is uh, listening and you have questioned Christianity and the followers of Jesus or those that claim to follow Jesus, um, get this book and see a perspective of what it's supposed to look like. And I believe that that can be something that's great for you. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this has been a great just conversation and joy to get to talk to you. Same. Thank you so much, Blake. Thanks again for tuning in to Rethinking Christianity. I hope that this episode with Ashley has been helpful for you, and I hope that what was presented can be something that challenges you and encourages you as it has been for myself. And I would encourage you to check out Ashley's podcast, The Why Though Podcast. Check out her books. Um, Be on the lookout August 31st for the book Love is the Resistance. Ashley uh, provides a lot of really good insight in all of her content. So she was really great to get to talk to. So I would encourage you to go check out more of her content and the stuff that she puts out uh, all over the interweb and everywhere else. And so thank you guys again for tuning in. If you could, again, do me a huge favor by rating and reviewing the podcast, that helps helps people like you discover the podcast, people that are thinking through their faith and thinking through Christianity. And uh, it would just be a blessing to me and super helpful. And so until next time, I'm Blake, and thank you for tuning in to Rethinking Christianity.